0: Warning. Strong content. This episode of Murder Trails includes references to true crime, murder and homicide, and to people who are now deceased. For more information, please read our description. Welcome to Murder Trails, presented by Jack Sim and Crime Tours Australia. Jack here from Crime Tours Australia, Brisbane Crime Tours, uh, author and publisher of the Murder Trail series, and welcome back to our podcast, Murder Trails, episode two of our brand new uh, uh, new series. And joining me today is my friend and colleague, Councillor Paul Tully. Hi, Jack. Hello, Paul. Thanks for coming back for our next episode.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Our episode today is called The Whiskey Go Go, and uh, Caleb Bow. Uh, producer here today we was chatting with him off air, uh, off, off camera off air um, about how you know he's only a young man. He doesn't he didn't know about the whiskey you mm. go go. It's incredible to me having grown up with that being talked about so uh, intensely amongst adults, teenagers, children. Mm. It was sort of the name was a household name because of what had happened. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people don't not only don't know that uh, the, the that this terrible crime took place in our city but they don't necessarily do know the location and incredibly um through my books and our tours uh, a lot of research is put in and, and sometimes the crime scenes are long gone quite often they're long gone you can walk people to or guide people through through words to the locations of an old crime where this where it took place an actual murder spot or crime scene Um, But they're long gone. But in Mm -hmm. the case of the Whiskey A Go-Go, incredibly, despite it being such a tragic event, the building survives. It Mm -hmm. was on the corner of, it still is physically in structure, still there on the corner of Paul's Terrace and
1: Amelia Street, Fortitude Valley. Just from that valley, the five ways, I think they call it there, and um, uh, uh, just diagonally across from. Where the Shamrock Hotel used to be, um, but that's true. Yeah, you know, the, the names of these crimes and where they were and the circumstances disappear. It's, it's like politics after you have gone five or ten years, no one remembers you. <laughs> so, so it's the same with crimes and crime scenes. There's no doubt
0: about that. It's 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 fascinating to me to we we one of our crime tours we run is the Bloody Brisbane Coach Tour, and the Moonlight State Fortitude Valley True Crime Tour. Where we walk the streets of the valley and talk about this this uh, era of corruption and grubbery and you know uh, with legal casinos and brothels being the norm and we take we walk to the Whiskey Go Go crime scene and our guides hold, we share tablets with photos of what it looked like then and incredibly that the building physically looks almost identical as it did in the day. Um, and it's it's extraordinary to show people a photo of what the club looked like, then show what it looked
1: like after the fire. And it's almost identical, Jack. Like when you come down uh, St Paul's Terrace, you're heading towards the Exhibition Grounds and towards Bowen Hills. Um, the the structure of the building, as you say, is is almost identical, oh. and uh, it's quite unusual for, for that is, to yeah. be the situation. Quite often, with terrible crimes around
0: the world, not just in Australia, but around the world, when the, a building is a scene of a terrible crime. They're razed. They're completely demolished. You know, People deliberately move on. They knock down houses yeah. and things. In this case, it just it survived, which I find incredible. Paul, I've long been an advocate. I think that building should be some sort of a memorial, the whole building, top and bottom. I'm, I wouldn't want it to be a tourist attraction, but it is something that's so special in the story of our city that I think it should be... The stories of those that perished could be told within its structure um, and the whole story of this, you know, to me, it should be a landmark that is potent in our city, that people for all time remember this very bad period of time. I mean, yes. this year is 50 years, half a century, yeah,
1: you know, and, and it's still not really, resolved. Yeah, yeah, and and 15 people died there. It's, um it's very difficult now, so, so you know it's, it's privately um, yeah, you know, that decision wasn't made at the time and it could have been uh, but it wasn't. Um, yeah, I, I think what you're saying a lot of people would endorse that. I think it's just important but
0: today we're going to be talking about what actually happened for those listening that don't know um, the whiskey Gogo was a popular nightclub at the top end of the, of the valley. Um, it had a wonderful uh, wonderful joy a wonderful reputation. Lots of different age groups would go there. They had a, uh, a dance floor. They had a, um, a, a band, a band sort of area where bands could sit up and play. But they also had tables, chairs, a restaurant with a fully yeah. qualified chef. Uh, today, when you think of nightclubs, the valley, most people, younger people particularly, just think, oh, it's a place you go and you get dressed up and you go in and get drunk and, and might have a you know, pretty architectural. There was a bit of that. Yeah, it was a <laughs> bit yeah, the, the, but, but the whiskey was a bit more broad, wasn't it? In yeah, it was.
1: It, it took a, a long time. Did of you go there, Paul? Yeah, I think I might have only been there once, maybe twice, but the youngest person who died there was uh, 17. Um, I think the oldest was 50, uh, mm-hmm. one of the victims from uh, Rockhampton. So it was a wide um, group of uh, people, but one of them was from uh, Ipswich. Um, He was 32, and um, yes, it attracted a lot lot of people. They had a name, Whiskey A Go-Go. Like, that's one (laughs) of the rare names that that people of that era couldn't possibly forget. And Everyone knew where that was. Well, uh,
0: there was a landmark um, establishment in Los Angeles called the Whiskey A Go-Go, and, you know, uh, listeners, viewers, you know, this is the era of go-go dances and, you know, great music and, you know, good entertainment. As we painted in our earlier episode, you know, cabaret clubs, nightclubs. This was a place where Brisbaneites let their hair down and the whiskey was no exception, but um, there was a bit of trouble brewing at this time as we heard previously. Uh, I just thought i might run through some of the people who were there that night. Um, it was Carol Greenpool. she was a 26 year old secretary from Camp Hill on Brisbane's uh, south side. Um, she was there to enjoy the, the live music. Her mum was quite concerned about her going along because She'd been following the news, clubs being, you know, the Torino's mm-hmm. being bombed. Yeah, she was a bit worried about her daughter going. Um, but she wanted to go because she wanted to see a fav- one of her favourite bands playing that night um, with a female cousin. They got dressed up and they went along to see the Deltones. Oh, ah, the daughter, Deltones. I'd pretty yep. <laughs> Well, forgotten that name, too. The legendary Deltones. Yeah. With Pee-wee with his big, yeah, loud, yeah. his beautiful baritone voice. Yes, yes. Um... They, they were playing at the National Hotel, again, a place well-known in Brisbane circles at that time. Um, and, but they were late and they missed the set there, so they decided to catch them at the Whiskey Go Go. Uh, and uh, so they head along there. Uh, there was already quite a big crowd there to see the Deltones. Among them was William Nolan, Wendy Drew and Brian Watson, Leslie uh, Pellethorpe and David Green. Father and son uh, Ernie and Des Peters were there too to see the band and celebrate... The purchase of their uh, first racehorse at the uh, at an auction at the RNA Showgrounds, a pretty seventeen-year-old waitress Jennifer Davies, who'd only been in Brisbane three months, um, she brought them their drinks. Jennifer had moved up from Melbourne, was living at New Farm, and she'd only been working uh, at the Whiskey Go Go. Um, well, she was working there three nights. She'd only been working there a short time, but she worked three nights a week there, and in another restaurant in Brisbane during the day. Uh, also at the club that night were 29-year-old uh, Desima Carroll and 23-year-old, uh, 23-year-old barmaid, barman Peter Marcus. Uh, in the kitchen, uh, sampling the cuisine, was fellow Cordon Bleu chef Paul Zola from the National Hotel. Um, as the del- 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 Deltones took the stage, it was, it was was uh, everyone there you know, clapped and cheered. They were really excited. The guys put on a great, great set. Uh, the atmosphere was electric. Everyone was having fun. Most people wanted to stay on until the early hours of the morning. Um, they were all friends, family members, work colleagues,
1: musicians, their fans. Completely unaware of the danger that they were actually in. I, I think most of them wouldn't have realised or connected. Um, yeah, the earlier warnings that uh, it was a pretty reputable you know, sort of club where where people went. You know, on a Thursday night into the early hours. I,
0: I think most of them wouldn't wouldn't have even given it a second thought. I've, I've I've interviewed quite a few people Paul, who were there that night and then left early and through strange circumstances, decided to leave early, and they would have been there normally yeah. and stayed yep. on to watch the Deltones and, yep. and Trinity, who were yeah, to Trinity play after, after. Yep. the Deltones. They were the house band. Um, they um, they were, they were due to thick play the following Monday, but had been brought on to play that night. Um, but there were lots of people who were who were there right up almost until. The firebombing moment, the terrible moment, um, but they left for whatever reason. You know, they you know, that day something had changed, so they had to go and catch someone else before another club closed. Or it's extraordinary the, the number of people that were just were just part that could have almost died in, in what was about to happen. They, um, those people I've talked to, described it, that everyone I spoke to was well aware of the problems that the whiskey was going through. The owners. Um, were well-known men. I believe they Mm. lived on the north side, the the Little Brothers. Everyone knew, lots of people knew them. People wanted to support this club through the problems they were having financially too. And in fact, many. I I can tell you two of the people I spoke to who were there that night have told me that they were aware of the financial issues um, and they wanted to support, they wanted the club to stay open. You know, they loved the place. And despite what they read in the papers, uh, they, they they were really passionate about
1: supporting this venue, which they just they adored. I've got, I've got to say that the the prelude to that, which we spoke about in the in the previous program uh, episode, the um, there was a, a feeling that something could happen, but no one thought it could be as bad as this. No. Yeah, you know, a fire, you know, the, the petrol being ignited on the steps in the in the uh, tins there, and then just funneling up into the uh, top story. Um, it was extraordinary. You know, people were basically trapped. Uh, and died, and 15 of them. Terrible, terrible, terrible situation. Well, well
0: Trinity started to, um, they were originally built, um, Trinity, who were the house band, they were originally um, booked to play on the following Monday, but in a twist of fate, the group that was playing on the night following the Deltones cancelled. And so that those guys from the band turned up to play at the Whiskey A Go Go a full week earlier. Um, this terrible twist of fate meant that. Two of the band members, Colin Falster and Darcy Day, um, were doomed. Uh, 19-year-old Faye Will, who worked for Queensland Railways Refreshment Rooms, um, she also was about to die. She um, turned up to watch Trinity with her brother. Um, And very tragically, um, at 2.05am, just minutes before tragedy, um, Faye's brother decided to go home. He said goodbye to his sister. Mm-hmm. This was the last time he ever saw his sibling alive.
1: Yeah, and, and it's all over, not not long after that. And um, I think the tragedy was that it enveloped the uh, the flames and, and the uh, smoke enveloped the club so quickly and people didn't know where to go, where to turn, how to get out. Um, at 2.08am, uh, Constable
0: McSherry drove past the club in his patrol car. He normally patrolled the valley at uh, this time of night. He noticed a bloke drunk staggering beside another car, nothing unusual <laughs> in the valley, and he thought, I'll drive around the block, and if he's still 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 drunk, I'll book him. He um, saw him at the wheel of the car, he'd yeah. book him, you know. Um, so he just circled the block, that, planning to return, and uh, just as he drove away, a car pulled up out the front of the Whiskey Go go and two men wearing black clothes and balaclavas to hide their, their, um, their, their, their appearance. Um uh, Emerged from the vehicle. They removed, uh, they scanned the street, made sure no one was around, and then seeing no one, they went to the boot of the car and they removed two large petrol drums full of fuel that they'd siphoned from cars in the back street. And you know, they didn't want to spend the money on fuel, mm. just to nick it out of a car. That was pretty common in those days too, people siphoning petrol from people's cars if yeah, you run it alone.
1: Pretty normal.
0: Uh, um, one of the, they, do. These were heavy drums. They carried them over into the entrance of the club, rolled them into the foyer, and they lit a book of matches—the sort of matches you got from hotels yeah. in the old days—and yeah. threw it in. The sort of fuel spewed from the drum, they ignited, and within just minutes, the uh, the club was was enveloped in flame. Uh, my understanding, Paul, is that at the top of the staircase there was a there was a powerful air conditioning unit, or close to the top of the stairs. This created sort of a
1: draft that pulled the air straight up into into the the club. Into into the club itself. Uh,
0: On the first floor or the upper floor of the building, all the windows were glass and they were
1: closed so that the air conditioning could keep people cool. Um, And... And there were curtains that hung down from most, if not all, all of those as well. But can I say this? The, The actions that happened, this wasn't a disused or an unoccupied nightclub. It was clear, would have been clear from the... People doing that, this was their, um, this was the signature tune of what they were trying to do. Um, and they could hardly say it was an accident or they thought everyone was going to get out. This was in the middle of a nightclub performance. And um, the, you know, the two who were finally convicted and any others who weren't convicted, you know, who were behind this, really stand condemned for allowing 15 innocent people to die.
0: There's no way that this, you know, over the years that followed two men who were convicted of it, from within the walls of Boggo Road Jail, Brisbane's notorious prison maintained that they were innocent, the victims of police corruption. We wouldn't do such a thing. Um, You know, it it beggars belief that anybody could argue that they were not aware of what would happen if you blew up two petrol drums in the entrance to a popular club. The club probably normally would have, perhaps as double the number of people, but on this night,
1: I think it was around eighty odd people that were there, and most of them did. Yes, and, and most of them uh, did get out. But um obviously, in the in the panic, you know, in the in the seconds after the drums uh, you know, fired up, um, it was just pandemonium. L- lucky that more people didn't die. Well, it was my understanding, Paul, that the, the
0: air, air concert pulled those flames up the stairs, and that the rubber material under the on the staircase. Um,
1: Helped pull that yeah. ignited, and, and there was a bend in in the, in the stairs back back into the you know, top of the nightclub, and um, yeah, and as I say, I would have been there maybe six months before that. You know, it's not the sort the layout of clubs is not something you take a lot of notice of because my images of that now are the external images on the day, you know, after daylight and the fire when the local newspapers just you know turned this into one of the most graphic and hurtful stories that Brisbane's ever seen. The, uh, it, it was, and as I said, growing up, you know, it was something that people, you know,
0: palpable, the uh, impact of the crime on, on the era. Everybody sort of knew someone who'd been there that night who either died or almost died. I've interviewed a person who was born in the back of a taxi cab because um, uh, when the fire, uh, the fire and the need to get victims to hospital, um, there were no ambulances available, so uh, he was mm-hmm. born in the back of a taxi mm-hmm. because they couldn't get his mum, dad couldn't get a, an ambulance mm-hmm. when she went into labour. His mum went to labour. And he said, "I was born, I was born in a cab because of the whiskey go go mm-hmm. um, But Sherry came back round the corner um, just just a few minutes later, and the whole club was on fire. With the glass windows on that first floor had flames pouring out of them. There's a graphic photo that those who were watching this on YouTube will be able to see, taken, I think it was from the Curie Mail newspaper, the only real shot of the on fire, but you can see these flames pouring out of the windows. It's truly it's just otherworldly, you know, like hell. And uh, um, he contacted fire brigade, um, the fire brigade, trucks arrived and began trying to extinguish the flames. It was just under about 20 minutes, I think, they managed to suppress the flames. The, one of the, the cooks in the the at the club was a bit of a hero because he managed to get people through the darkness. So I might just explain as the flames went up into the club, the curtains that you mentioned, Paul, they caught on fire because they were they were made of a material, plastic material that just sort of ignited and melted and dripped. Mm. And that spread up into the, as I understand it, the foam ceiling panels that they had in the roof. Mm. And that then cut the flames then cut the power. Yes. And the air conditioner was pulling all this black toxic smoke from these materials on fire into the club. So people were plunged into darkness. They couldn't see. There were no emergency lights or anything. Uh, The chef of the club helped to get people down the the stairs and out through the back door, Uh, back doors. Those doors are no longer those of the time, but the entrance or the exit they managed to get out is still in the location Mm. where they poured out into safety but um, McSherry and the fire brigade, they were really hopeful that when they went into the club that they would find more people alive. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, 15 people had perished, and um, there were uh, oh, that's often reported even to this day in articles. You know, 15 people died, but there were literally scores of other people who were seriously injured. I, I interviewed a person quite some years ago, and it, uh, he'd very badly broken his arm. He'd thrown himself out through one of the windows, broke it with a chair. and He climbed down onto an awning and then he dropped to the ground. And as he fell, he didn't. It was quite, it was quite a long way down. And as he landed on the footpath, he sort of he went sideways and he smashed his um, his uh, vice in his upper arm, mm. broke his arm, and he had had a plate in it ever since, and never had proper use of his arm again. There were other people who did the same that were lacerated by glass. Um, and, you know, the psychological impact, not just on those that were in the club who survived, but on their families who lost their friends, on the police and the fire crews that had to attend and then remove all those poor people who, who died. I mean, uh, the medical people that had to
1: treat people with these
0: injuries, the impact on our city is just profound.
1: Yeah. It's it's memories that will will never fade for the people closely involved, but people who were living in uh, Brisbane at the time, or living in Queensland and around Australia, yeah, will will never forget um, how bad it really was. It was all over in one sense, even though the fire took longer to extinguish, but it was all over for some people's lives in two or three minutes. People, I was going to say there was no way out. There was for some people, but in the smoke and the confusion, the yelling, the angst the that people had, you know, that they didn't have time to think. They didn't, they, as you say, the electricity had completely gone. It was a darkened sort of club without, without the electricity. People didn't know, didn't have a clue um, uh, how to get out and they, they perished in a matter of minutes.
0: Discover Brisbane's criminal history. Join me, Jack Sim, and my team of guides as we explore Queensland's fascinating criminal past. Cases we explore include the Whiskey gogo go the Betty Shanks murder and the vampire killer. We have a range of different crime walks and coach tours. To book a tour, brisbanecrimetours.com.au or crimetoursaustralia.com.au we look forward to sharing our dark past with you. Things like we see today, like fire evacuation plans, you know, the written up plans are on walls and such. So this sort of thing was not really very... Originally enforced. There was a fire brigade did play a role in trying to bring buildings up to code and particularly mm-hmm. old buildings,
1: but you know, this was a little bit slacker in those days than it, than it is today. And um, but, but even to this day, can I say, I go into places like restaurants or bigger places, I still look around for the Exit doors, you know, even in cinemas and places like that, and that goes back 50 years. And people might say, oh, you know, you must be happy with the signage, what?" Who knows? Even the emergency lighting might might fail to work. You sit in a cinema and you've got a couple hundred people in that today. Would they know where to go and how to get out and get you of a fire?
0: Yeah, fire. Up. That's right. I mean, this and this was a much more simple and naive time too, and you know, perhaps people didn't really think of these things at the time, but. Who would have ever thought that something like this would happen? You know, just such a um, just such a shocking thing. Um, uh, one of the urban myths is that uh, that uh, the perpetrators blocked the exit doors with drums of uh, spoiled old oil, oil and fat. Fat, yes. Uh, yes. That's one. Of that. Or another version I've heard is that the perpetrators blocked and locked the doors from the outside so people couldn't get out. And that's not that's not true. What is true is that there were two drums of spent kitchen oil mm. that were in the fire exit area, and that made it very difficult for them to yeah. get out.
1: But I think it was accepted um, at the time that was where it was pretty well normally stored, and there was nothing, there was unusual, nothing unusual about, about it. it. And right. as you say, when the bala- two balaclava Persons turned up. They had a quick look around. They weren't pre-planning and doing other stuff at the back or, or at the side. They turned up and quickly lit the fire, well, yeah. And disappeared. Yeah.
0: The um, a witness at the time who was ignored by police, um, who was never, who, whose statement was never part of the trial of the two men involved who were ultimately convicted. Um, she identified there was a third person sitting at the wheel of the getaway car, um, and that was never never made prominent by no. the police at the time which instantly makes a complicated scenario, not just what ultimately um, was
1: established. they might board. have matched the, the police narrative of what happened, but I, I recall the the next morning, the, the photographs which were in the Telegraph newspaper of the old fire engines, fire engines as we used yeah. to call them, and some of the media and some of the public and the police, still cool. on St Paul's Terrace, looking at the burnt-out shell. It's, it's a memory, in my mind, um, I don't really remember the club as an active working club. I do remember that that shocking photograph um, taken probably about three hours, uh, two to three hours after the bombing. Um, that's what's in my mind and, and it's still there 50 years later, even when, when I go. And um, over the years, my boys are now in their early 20s, we go to the exhibition, we find a park down past St Paul's Terrace. And going past that building, I'd point that out to them so that they knew part of the history of Brisbane. But that that um, that fire scene in in the newspapers is still shockingly in my mind 50 years later. The uh, one of the uh, this was the year as
0: we as were talked about in the last episode of Joe Bjelke Peters, the Premier of Queensland. The Premier came out at the time and said that there'd be swift justice. Just a few days later, two men whose names became not only infamous in Brisbane, but Australia-wide, um, were arrested and dragged before the court, protesting their innocence pretty much from the start. Um, one of them, uh, well, the two men involved were John Andrew Stewart, who was reported in The Telegraph, being 32 at the time of, of the crime, mm-hmm. and James Richard Finch, an Englishman, um, a friend of John Andrew Stewart. Uh, he was reported as being 28 in the tally as well. They um, These two fellows had a long and extensive criminal background, especially John Andrew Stewart. Um, Stewart uh, was a good friend of Brian Bolton, who we, we talked about in the last episode. Yeah, the journalist from the mm-hmm. Sunday Sun. Yeah. And he was one of the sources that Brian Bolton was using to reveal this situation with southern criminals muscling in on the
1: on the Brisbane nightclub scene in an attempt to extort money and protection money. And probably not necessarily realising that the uh, criminals moving in was, but one of them was at least the person Brian Bolton was talking to. that they'd set the scene that, oh, this is what we know, that, you know, they're going to muscle in on the scene, they're going to try to extract money and and, uh, extort um, nightclub owners and operators. Um, But it all kind of appeared to come true. And, of course, uh, Stuart and Finch always said that they were verbaled by the police um, but as we've discussed in what,
0: what does that mean oh verbal
1: means um well in one they said they had a police had a prepared statement um for them to sign and of course if they if they, they say it was given voluntarily there were lots of cases like this where people were verbal that it was just he said she said the police said that you know you said this but then you refused to sign the, the document so this, this this was a, a
0: I remember when I was researching another very old crime from the 1930s. This was actually part of police training in Queensland back in the early days is you would type up a for listeners and viewers would know but this was a standard type of policing before many of the improvements that were made in our justice system. A police officer knew that a knew in knew, sure. knew for sure that a fellow was guilty of burglary for example. And so they bring him in he was a known burglar and they put a statement in front of him that he burgled six houses in Ascot on brisbane's north side and it'd be all typed up that i guess I, on this date i at this time i burgled these houses a typed confession they put it in front of him and they would then put pressure on him to sign it and agree that he would do it i've yeah. met many old crimps who told me that they used to sign stuff and they'd make deals with the police that they pop a sentence in relation to these charges so that their friend or someone else would be let go, or the police did deals with criminals. It was an actual technique, yes. as, as horrid as we might find it today. Police used it, usually always in police, for the, for the police's favour. But Stuart and Fitch talking about being verbal by the coppers, that almost from the start resonated with a hell of a lot of Brisbane residents who were already aware that police
1: could be your worst enemy. That's true. Cases. But as you and I have discussed um, in relation to other matters, you might get verbaled. That doesn't prove you didn't do the crime. Like the police probably in a lot of cases knew, knew who was right for it. And even though they were verbal and um, in today's sort of um, criminal judicial sort of proceedings, that, that would be horrendous and probably see the police charged uh, with offences. Uh, the fact that they were verbaled and uh, statements were presented for them to sign, um, they didn't necessarily mean that they weren't guilty. I, an old detective friend of mine has passed away now, who learned his craft
0: in the thirties and forties. He's long gone now, but he lived to quite a ripe old age. He said to me, he said, "Look, he said, people today would would find it unacceptable, but he said, he said, people don't understand the type of vicious pricks we were dealing with." That's his exact words. He said dangerous and evil men, he said, mm, we mm. had none of the policing techniques of today, and he said, this was a power play, when you had him sitting in a chair under questioning, he said, this was a power play between two parties, us and them, and he said, if you could screw him on, getting, you know, if you could get him pinned down with a statement, he said, that you, could, you know, you, you, you had something over him, and he said, he said we were. He said one of the cribs of, of the era he, uh, he went through. He said they couldn't read and write. He said so we had to type it up for him. Yeah, because yeah. they had to go before a court. Yeah. And he said he said he said I'm not making excuses. He said I I know for a fact that at times this was used wrongly, but he said in when I in my day when I was taught this was a technique to secure
1: and make society safer from some of the worst bastards
0: you've ever come yeah.
1: across. Yeah, well, why wouldn't you plead guilty to 10 charges to avoid another 20? Yeah, you know, it's sort of from that era, the 30s, 40s, 50s. Yeah, and it's very hard in today's, you know, it's like political correctness. If you go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years, if things were normal, they mightn't have been right, but they were normal and they were pretty well accepted by society. And uh, that doesn't surprise me, that... that yeah, what the police officers in that 30s and 40s and 50s in Queensland uh, were, were doing. Look, and, I'm, and for listeners and viewers, don't think for one moment Paul
0: and I are condoning these sort of acts at all, but but it was a different era and it's very important we talk and discuss some of these sort of differences. When Stuart Finch claimed, though, that police had him, it resonated with a lot of Queenslanders. They'd been on the wrong side of the police. Mm. And by this time in Queensland, the police force was almost like a semi-paramilitary sort of... Group, you know, they were a group, very close, organization tight knit, tight knit,
1: and very tough.
0: Yeah, very tough, physically tough. You know, this was an era where, the, the other thing that's changed, maybe it's different today, but you know, there
1: were police often used physical force to. Do you remember the out? old telephone book technique? Yeah, in those that's days right, when yeah. the telephone book was that that thick. I know many cases. Barristers have told me over the years that they had no doubt that the, uh, the their clients were telling the truth. The book was placed on their stomach and they were hit and um, because there were no marks that were left on that but it made people confess to crimes which probably they did but uh, they wouldn't have otherwise admitted to it except for the, the, the physical punishment now that yeah, I'm talking about I guess an era in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. A friend of mine Kevin Gregory
0: Ryan a standover man and thug of the 1940s and 50s he's, uh, he's gone now Kev was a physically big guy worked in Brisbane and in Sydney as a standover man that is a a debt collector and so on. He mm-hmm. Knew all the characters of the day. He was a dear friend of mine. He had a he had a phone book's worth of criminal history behind his life. Um, and uh, but but Kevin said to me, he said we expected coppers to do this to us. And he said it was part of you know when you in the criminal circles, this is what police did, and we expected it. And he said like, and if they didn't do it, he said we would have them for dinner. Like he said, like he said, you know, it was a different time, and he didn't have much time for uh, he said, give me the days where a copper would just belching in the gob and then demand you sign a statement. He said, I'd rather that degree of honesty from him <laughs> from he said, someone sitting there trying to get into my head and understand me and be kind and that. He said, "It's just different time, I guess. But Stuart Fitch, you know, for all their claims of being innocent, I have no doubt in my mind, Paul, that they actually were involved. I don't know if they I don't believe they were alone in it, but
1: Now, that's going to be interesting with the the new uh, coronial inquest. Uh, We're still waiting for that to be handed down. Whether there were others who were in the criminal scene in Brisbane, well-known in the criminal scene for various reasons, um, whether or not they were involved as well. Not necessarily on the night, uh, but certainly behind 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 this extortion extortion. here.
0: Well, Stuart Stuart Finch were arrested. They were brought um, Brought into the police watchhouse, you know, arguing and, and uh, carrying on in court. Then they ended up being brought before the Holland Park Magistrates Court for the hearing of the of the charge of the charges. They were charged with arson and one count of murder. They were oh, they actually were charged with um, fifteen counts of murder, but only one charge. Was what was what they were going to face in the Supreme Court. That's
1: right. It was in relation to one of one of those who died. Before. It was a seventeen-year-old, I believe, and uh, it's a it's a technique which has been used quite properly. That if for some reason um, that charge failed, um, they could charge them. Well, you can't be. Well, the law has been changed. You know, the double jeopardy law has been changed in Queensland. But you could never be tried again if you were found not guilty. But if, if the, uh, that, that charge had failed and they were found not guilty for some technical reason... Um, well, there's 14 others. There's 14 others technically that could be charged. It's, it's something that I certainly support with um, multiple charges or, or murders like that. It gives them you know, that opportunity to, to proceed um, further, especially if people are likely to um, get out on a technicality.
0: It was, uh, yeah, it was a very good idea from the police's perspective. Only a few days into their, their, their trial began later in 1973, and only a few days into the trial, Stewart began to um, swallow even more wire. Um, with, while they were, every time they were taken to court within the walls of Bollaro Jail, the two men continued to protest their innocence, physically injuring, maiming themselves, drinking chemicals. Stuart was renowned for physically sewing his lips together with wire or anything he'd get his hands on so that police couldn't verbal him again, put words into his mouth. But he would drink bleach, chemicals that he'd managed to get access to. um, And Stuart was renowned amongst prison officers for his ability that no matter matter how well they searched him, he would somehow manage to get items that he could mutilate and injure himself with. And on one occasion he, he made, on several occasions he made wire crosses out of pieces of uh, that hot, uh, tensioned metal sort of that you find in a bed spring. Oh, yes. And so he fashioned them into a cross by putting rubber band around mm, the points, yeah. put the two pieces of metal, get them to overlap, and then bring the corners together and then secure a rubber band around the hole. They put in a piece of fruit or something that he was allowed to have as a ration and swallow it. And then when it went into his stomach, the stomach acids would dissolve the rubber band the metal will fling apart and tear his stomach to ribbons, and of course then you'd have to be taken to hospital for treatment. I've often wondered, uh, uh, not everyone one has ever said about this ball, but Stuart in 1962, 50, oh, 60 years ago, 61 years ago, he um, he actually escaped from the mental health unit of the Royal Brisbane Hospital, and went on the run, and was cornered at the at the uh, Regent Cinema in Brisbane just as a youth. He was serving time for, uh, I think it was unlaw- unlawful use of a motor vehicle, but it feigned having mental illness. So he was taken to hospital for treatment. He was taken from Boulder Road to treatment in hospital, and he managed to escape. Uh, and I often wondered if part of the reason he did this act, there was no hospital at the jail that could treat him for a serious thing like having his stomach torn apart. Often one of his aim was to get out of the jail so perhaps he could try and effect an
1: escape again. Or well, you'd think that's po- po- possible because that's pretty crazy stuff to do, to, to injure yourself. And he missed a, a lot of the trial because he was, you know, ill. and needed, The judge realised it was being done, done deliberately, that the case wasn't going to be held up. But either he was mad and or very, very cunning. His, um, his mother called him
0: uh, her loving maniac. That was her nickname for her son, her loving maniac. John had been in and out of prison all through his youth, stealing cars, petty robbery. I met a taxi driver a few years ago who'd been ripped off by him. Uh, he was notorious. He phoned a taxi to the north side. His family lived on the north side of Brisbane. Yeah. His father died when he was quite young, so he uh, he, he often sort of carried on, made a made hell for his mother, who stood by him, though, all the time. He had a, a brother, Danny, as well, who uh, ultimately was to play a role in his arrest he gave evidence to police that he'd provided John with petrol, with petrol drums. So mm. the, um, not knowing that it was going to be used for the fire. Um, but uh, Stuart, Stewart uh, notoriously uh, within the, when he was a youth in jail, was, was always trying to escape. Um, he was a prolific writer of poetry. Uh, officers found him quite a nice guy. Like if he liked you, he liked you. If he hated you, he hated you. You always knew where you stood with John Andrew Stewart, by all accounts. Um, But yeah, as you said, like uh, during his trial, he he sacked his defence counsel. He was unrepresented at the time he was actually sentenced. He was was lying in a hospital bed.
1: First time, I think, in Queensland history, someone had been sentenced. I think that might be Australian history, sentenced to a life imprisonment and what wasn't in Mm -hmm. the court to hear the sentence being handed down. down. Yeah, so as I say, it was either really crazy or really crafty.
0: Well, it was on the 11th of October 1973 that the jury returned the verdict that they were, that had been predicted. They were guilty of murder and they were sentenced to life imprisonment with hard labour. The trial had lasted 31 days. Over 150 witnesses had been called. Um, only Finch was present to hear um, the words of the justice and he decided in disbelief Stewart was told the jury's verdict. 30 minutes later by a senior prison official as he lay-in in a hospital bed. Um, in our next episode, Paul, I'm going to be uh, talking with uh, John Peel, who's a former prison officer at Bogger Road, and he was responsible for overseeing Stuart Fitch, their mm-hmm. security, uh, in what was called C-Wing, in uh, Brisbane prison, a.k.a. Bogger Road Jail. And John, uh, John's going to share his insights with us about what they were like as individuals. But, uh, look, we've already alluded to it a bit this episode, you know, the question of whether or not they actually did what they did. And uh, uh, under parliamentary privilege in 2015, uh, a well-known former criminal made the claim that he'd actually been the one that had set fire to the Torino's nightclub in the valley. And he claimed that he'd been ordered to do that by two men whose names are now infamous in Queensland and have long been characters Dark, shadowy figures in the background of our of our city and our state, and that's uh, 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 Vince O'Dempsey and Gary Dubois. Mm-hmm. These men, uh, I own a nineteen thirty Studebaker, and the Studebaker. Club, I'm a member of the Studebaker Club, and these blokes fancy themselves as kind of modern day outlaws in a way. They drove fast far Studebaker cars. They um, they uh, were involved in armed robberies and thievery. In nineteen eighty, they were named as being uh, that it was recommended that they, uh, their names came up at the inquest into the disappearance of Barbara McCulkin and her daughters, daughters yes. just a year after the Whiskey-A-Go-Go firebombing, uh, almost, almost to the month there was, uh, in, in, uh, in early in 1974, uh, to, uh, Barbara McCulkin and her two young uh, children were abducted from their Highgate Hill Brisbane home and for decades it was unknown exactly what had happened to them. But uh, Gary uh, Dubai and Vince O'Dempsey were named as being by neighbours as being seen leaving the property around the time that the women disappeared. Uh, Charges were recommended to be laid but never were. And in more recent times, though, their names have come up again in relation to this era of Brisbane and the disappearance of prostitutes and individuals. It's quite extraordinary that. uh, the suggestion these days is that they were behind, the organisers behind uh, the Whiskey A Go Go. You enjoy reading about true crime? The Murder Trail series explores some of Queensland's most infamous cases, including who killed Betty Shanks, Slim Halliday, the taxi driver killer, the Rampage of Killer cast, and Innocence Loss the Last Man Hanged in Queensland. Just some of the titles available at jacksim.com.au. I'm Jack Sim. Please support my local publishing business as I explore some of Queensland's dark past. Um, shall I tell you what I reckon, Paul? Please do. <laughs> I think that John Andrew Stewart and James Richard Fitch were definitely involved. Um, I think uh, the man who drove the car was uh, Billy McCulkin. I think he drove the vehicle, well known tattoo right, parlor yeah. yeah. uh, operator. Uh, I think he was the one that drove the vehicle. That's my feeling, just from people I know, I've spoken to. I think O'Dempsey and Dubai um, were behind organising it. And I think John Andrew Stewart was feeding his friend Brian Bolton and other journalists and police a fictional story that Southern criminals were going to stand over local operators. I think this was a local plan. I yeah.
1: don't think there was a southern element to it at all, just like that detective said. I think that bit's definitely right that it was it was local. Um, but those other two who weren't charged uh, originally with the McCulkin murders, I think that was right because they decided, the Crown decided, that there was not enough evidence at the time. But uh, they ultimately... Uh, They were found guilty. They were found
0: guilty. Gary Debye has died in jail with Dempsey is currently serving life in relation to the abduction of the McCullpins. The the story behind that we'll explore in another episode in more detail, Paul. But essentially, Barbara was aware her husband had driven the vehicle or played a role in the Whiskey A Go-Go and told friends and family and neighbours that her husband, if he didn't better better treat her, she would go to police. And so... um, O Dempsey and Dubai in my view have, there's no doubt then stepped in to silence her what became of them is is unknown their bodies have never been found but uh, Dubai uh, and asey were given
1: a life imprisonment in, in, in a, not to just past right. for their abduction and murder I, th- I think you're right that even though only two people were found guilty in relay or ch- found guilty or ch- even charged in relation to the whiskey and Gogo murders possibly another three. Uh, could have been roped in at the time, but the the evidentiary uh, uh, issues uh, were very difficult in those days. Uh, DNA evidence was was not on the horizon. And um, the pair who were found guilty, I agree with you, I think they were guilty. What their direct involvement was, we may never know. And I certainly await the outcome of the uh, coroner's uh, inquest from uh, the last year.
0: At the time of our podcast going to air, um, the the, uh, Queensland Government has initiated a very a wonderful thing a long time in coming but the current government took the initiative and opened an inquest in relation to the whiskey go which was called from uh, called for by relatives and friends 50 years ago at the time of the inquiry people were so probably concerned that, that the truth might not be able to be found unless something as as uh, as uh, with the legal abilities of the Royal Commission, people were calling for it way back then, half a century down the track, we we're we we're keenly awaiting the outcome of uh, of that inquest, which we brought down this year, uh, in the last attempt to kind of get to the truth. Reg- uh, uh, one thing I often just one last point, Paul, it quite often comes up. I get people say to me or contact me when I go to book signings or on tours, and they say, "Oh." But, you know, I don't think Stuart and Finch were involved. They believed the story that these men were innocent. Uh, Look, one thing that's sort of been forgotten time is that James Finch confessed to his role in the crime. Front-page story of the Sun newspaper that Brian Bolton had once been a journalist of on Halloween, 31st of October, 1988, just shortly after Finch had been uh, released on parole and he returned to England. Uh, the day after he made a live via satellite confession on national television to Yana went the, the wonderful current affairs you know, journalist mm-hmm. of the day, he, he confessed to the Sun newspaper uh, to, uh, again, another wonderful, great journalist of the day, Dennis Watt. Yes. And he uh, made a full confession to him with all the details of his involvement and John Andrew Stewart's involvement in the Whiskey go go Tom Hamilton, the uh, welterweight boxer who was murdered in 1975, named him as being with uh, uh, Finch named that he was the one with him that rolled the drums into the club. He named Billy McCulkin as being the man driving the getaway car. Um, you know, it was a complicated uh, complicated scenario um, that, that, that uh, Finch laid out, but there's no doubt of those two men's involvement. It just didn't sweep up
1: a number of others. I loved the headline at the time, Yeah, you know, I, I did I did you it. You know, like, yeah, unless you really did it, why, why would you admit to doing that? And I, I think that's sort of proof positive of his involvement in that. Uh, we may never know the full truth, but I agree that we certainly know that um, Stuart and Finch uh, were involved in those uh, 15 horrific murders in 1973.
0: I was just thinking, Paul, I think earlier on in, the, uh, in our podcast, I think I met said that... Um, Billy McCulkin was a tattooist. Um, it was Billy Stokes who was a tattooist. Uh, he, he was yeah, definitely yeah, a local tattooist. Yeah. I think yeah. on Petrie Terrace. Yeah, I think, I think um, Billy McCulkin, I think he was. He ran like a pawnbroker's business, I think, or something of that Picture. nature. It's really, yeah. the, it's, the, all these names, it's hard to imagine a, 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 a more poorly laid out conspiracy with all these characters involved. Like, of course, there's also the overtone of you know whether the police were involved. You know this is the era of you know, you know individuals in the licensing branch who were very bad men. You know, and uh, you know there's some suggestion that perhaps you know they were involved in some way that they might get a cut of the insurance money when these clubs burned or You know that's always been the suggestion that perhaps all of this was also tied up with attempts to gain insurance money or God knows what. It's such a mess. After 50 years, you can only hope that the current inquest might lay bare a, a, a bit more clearly exactly who was involved. And I'd like to think that maybe, you know, even, even at this late stage, perhaps charges might be laid against a certain individual for his role, I think, as the mastermind of it all, but
1: we'll just have to wait and see. I think what we do know is that even after 50 years, the web of criminals who, who had a history of criminality, that's pretty well known, how it all connected. We may never know, but let's hope that inquest will put to bed 50 years of uncertainty.
0: Paul, thank you so much for sharing these episodes with me. Are you happy to
1: come back again and do another? Absolutely. Couple of some what, what do we call the, uh, the nickname of the skull cave? <laughs> the skull cave. Yeah. And I'm glad that you've moved from the books um, that you've been producing for many decades now, um, yeah, into modern technology. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, podcasting. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. And of course, you
0: know, our uh, passion for Australian history will be reflected in some more cases we'll take on board. And listeners and viewers, wonderful to have you along on this journey of Murder Trails, official podcast of Crime Tours Australia. I look forward to taking you on a journey to learn about some other infamous homicides and criminal cases in our next episode. I'm Jack Sim. Make sure to join us next time. Discover Brisbane's criminal history. Join me, Jack Sim, and my team of guides as we explore Queensland's fascinating criminal past. Cases we explore include the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, the Betty Shanks murder, and the vampire killer. We have a range of different crime walks and coach tours. To book a tour, brisbanecrimetours.com.au or crimetoursaustralia.com.au. Look forward to sharing our dark past with you.